Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. Two guests on this week's show. First, we're going to have Dr. Ravi Alada from Northwestern University. He studied a couple of decades of Major League Baseball game records and came up with a correlation between jet lag and on-field performance. And there's one specific statistic that gets altered by jet lag. You'll hear him describe that in detail. And as a second part, in kind of a celebration of the arrival of the Major League Baseball playoffs, we're going to talk to Dan Schulman from ESPN Radio, the voice of Major League Baseball, guy who's pretty much in a different city every night, and that's got to take a toll on your sleep. But first, let's get to Ravi Alada from Northwestern University. So the very first question that always goes to every guest on the Snooze Button podcast, whether they are a rock star, a neuroscientist, somewhere in between, uh, don't feel like I'm singling you out. Uh, how'd you sleep last night? Not particularly well, actually, <laughs> which is ironic. So how? So when you can't fall asleep because everybody, particularly experts, interestingly enough, uh, have have sleep issues. They all have different answers. What do you do on a night when you can't sleep? What's your trick? Well, the fact that I didn't sleep well means I probably haven't come up with a good enough trick yet. However, what I would I just would preface this a little bit for your audience by saying that the notion that we should go to sleep at night and then just sleep all the way through the night and wake up in the morning is probably not uh, may not be typical, let's just say. Um, most animals, you know, in the animal kingdom, they sleep in bouts. Um, it's actually fairly unusual for any organism and, and including human beings to just go to sleep, sleep at one time, then get up the next day and then stay awake until, you know, the next night. Um, of course, we know, for example, that in many cultures, they, a midday siesta is part of their, uh, part of the culture. And that's probably also part of the biology. We all go through kind of a dip in the after lunch in the afternoon. Um, and we go through dips all during the day where we could take a nap. Some people do take naps. Um, even some companies are providing nap spaces for their employees because they think it'll help improve overall productivity. And it's also on the other side of the coin, uh, waking up in the middle of the night, it shouldn't be seen as necessarily abnormal. And I think a lot of people are anxious about waking up in the middle of the night, which then the anxiety triggers more problems in terms of, in terms of falling asleep. So getting, so first, first off, I just wanted to pass that on that, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, that's, that's not, it doesn't mean you have a problem. Uh, that being said, I do have a problem. I, I have trouble getting back to sleep. Um, and so I do a couple things. One is I just try to think about something really boring in bed. And then if I can't, sleep after, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, I might get up and do something boring. Now for me, something that's relaxing, and this is probably not true for most people, you know, out there is I'll do, I'll do a little work. Um, I might answer some emails, um, that kind of thing. And somehow, I don't know why it, I find that relaxing, maybe because I'm thinking about work at night. And so if I just like, I'm able to take care of some of it, that kind of alleviate some of the anxiety or stress of, that might be keeping me up or keeping my mind active. And then I usually do pretty much better going, going to sleep. And, um, not to, that, that's probably, probably one of the major things. I think a couple things just to pass on to your audience is that, you know, cause I 
probably wouldn't give the advice of what I just did because you shouldn't be looking at a computer, shouldn't be looking at a computer screen. That's that's going to keep you awake. Um, I put a, a certain uh, red filter on mine that limits the amount of blue light, which is particularly bad for keeping you awake. And other things, just like not drinking coffee too close to bedtime, not doing heavy exercise before bedtime, uh, not drinking too much alcohol before bedtime. Um, those are all things that help you sustain a, a restfulness. It's remarkable how much we keep learning about sleep. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the thing I keep saying, and, and it's becoming, I feel like, almost a crutch in every episode, but I always talk about how, you know, it's one of the few things that everybody on the planet does, which you would think we would have this really massive sample size by now to have been able to lick all of the sleep problems, but there's a new yeah. study that comes out every day. You know, you talk about alcohol and sleep, and it was what, about three months ago or so now when the study came out that talked about, yes, alcohol will help you fall asleep, but man, will it be a lousy quality sleep once you're there? That's correct. Talk to me about your baseball study because I'm I'm fascinated when people come up with new angles to look at the way, um, you know, humans and sleep coexist or in some cases don't coexist at all. And I have a hunch that sleep is maybe a small subset of the study that you did. But give me the background on this. First of all, where did the idea for your study of specifically, I guess, jet lag and sleep come from? Did it come because you are a ravenously obsessed baseball fan and this was just another way of diving into the stats for you? Or talk to me about where this all came from. Well, uh, the, 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 the thing you mentioned is one of the reasons, <laughs> a major reason. Um, I think it was sort of a confluence of two of my interests. One is uh, my scientific background started in the area of circadian rhythms. And obviously, uh, circadian rhythms are 24-hour rhythms that govern many aspects of our biology, our behavior. And of course, probably the most prominent example of our 24-hour clock is our sleep-wake cycle. We, we wake up at a particular time of day and we go to bed at a particular time of day. And that happens about every 24 hours. Even if I put you in a cave, that will still happen. It'll be about every 24 hours, you'll still wake up and go to sleep. Even if you didn't have a clock near you, nothing. It's all internally driven by a biological clock. So I've always been very interested in that clock. Um, and at the same time, since you know childhood, collecting baseball cards and being interested in statistics, I was always interested in baseball as a great um, sport for doing statistical analysis. And you know, I, I, I grew up at the time when... Uh, sabermetrics books of Bill James were just coming out. Um, and so that was a very exciting time to get me involved in statistical analysis of baseball. And um, from the standpoint of the circadian clocks field, my interest, my, most of my work had been done in animal, simple animal models. But I also had a, a clinical background as a physician. So I was always interested in how do we apply the work we've done in circadian clocks and basic mechanisms in animals and apply that uh, to human beings. So to study it in humans, I needed a, a model, if you will, where we could disrupt the circadian clock and ask what happens when you disrupt the clock. So one of the ways you can disrupt the clock is via jet lag. So in jet lag, someone's traveling from Los Angeles to New York, um, but it turns out that your circadian clock, you know, while you can reset the clock on your watch right away as soon as you land, your biological clock, because of its stability, 
takes three days for it to travel those three time zones. So the first day you're in New York, you have jet lag because your clock is actually still back in LA or maybe in New Mexico or still on its way to New York. It hasn't, it hasn't quite arrived at the new time zone. So jet lag gave us a way of looking at what happens when you disrupt that clock. And then baseball gave us a way of studying performance of people who travel because the schedule is so dense and there's so much travel going on. We would know roughly when a team traveled. There's basically a day off between, between games typically. So we know when they traveled approximately. And we know from, wh- from which place they started and which place they landed. So we knew something about the travel. We knew players are jet lagged. And then we have the wealth of statistics in baseball that allowed us to measure the impact of that jet lag on performance. And, um, and I should just say, just as a way of acknowledging other work done in the field, there are other people who, who approach this question and have found that jet lag does impact things like winning percentage. Our study was, was unique and different in the standpoint of we were looking at a much larger set of games, almost uh, you know, 40,000 over a 20-year period. Um, so much larger data set. We wanted to try to understand if there were specific aspects of performance which were impacted by jet lag. In other words, okay, we know that you won't perform as well. Your team will lose more frequently when you're jet lag. We want to understand how that happens. And was it the fact that everything gets worse or are there particular metrics that get worse? And so that's what we were trying to do with our stuff. So, so it wasn't just, uh, you know, win loss percentage or things like that. It, did you get as granular as figuring out, you know, and, and this may be beyond the scope, but I mean, it, if I'm a control pitcher, I'm going to have a harder time than if I'm somebody that throws 105 miles an hour, or I'm going to perform worse if I'm a home run hitter versus a singles hitter. Like, did you get that granular with it? Not, not quite, but I think we're close. Um, so what we did find was that um, pitchers give up more home runs. That was the strongest effect of anything we saw. So pitchers didn't, they didn't, they didn't give up more walks. They didn't have fewer strikeouts. They didn't have more wild pitches. Or we, we couldn't detect those things at least. Um, but it was clear they gave up more home runs. Um, and so uh, to get to your, so that was clear. So we saw a very specific effect on home runs. Now, if you look at the data on, and, and then now with the, I don't know if you're familiar with pitch FX or if your audience is familiar with it, but it's really tracking every pitch now. Velocity, type of pitch, fastball, curveball, it's location in the strike zone, out of the strike zone, this case may be. Um, so there are now databases of, I think, millions of pitches now that have been tracked. Um, and this database is now available to us, and we're now looking to see what happens to a jet lag pitcher when uh, at their in, at the velocity, location, et cetera, their pitches, in fact, could explain why they give up more home runs. So we do know this, that home, uh, pitches in a particular location tend to be middle in of the plate and below a certain velocity uh, tend to give up more home runs. So a pitcher who can stay above 95 is going to have a lower home run rate, actually, in general, controlling the velocity. So prediction might be that a jet lag pitcher, may their velocity may drop 
and their location may be less well controlled, such that their pitches are in a zone, both location and velocity wise, that's more likely to give up more home runs. But that's that's a prediction or a, or a hypothesis, and we're currently looking through the data to see whether that's true. Are there other elements to it, like performance in the field? Am I going to have a lousy game at shortstop if I'm jet lagged, or, or are we basically just kind of looking at pitching and hitting? Well, we didn't we didn't see that. We didn't see like a large change in, in the number of errors, for example. Um, we looked at uh, fielding independent pitching, sort of to separate off the fielding part. And it's just in terms of the size of the effects we observe. So. I may say it a certain way. I don't like to get too, too too statistical, but you have a professor. Oh, no, here, get, so get as statistical as you want. Are we got all the time I'm in the world? I'll get a number. So if you look at the difference in terms of the runs, so we know that the home team wins a little bit more than the away team. It's about 54% of the time. So it's a bit of home field advantage. If you look at how, much, how many runs the home team scores more than the road team, it's about 0.2 runs per game more. So 0.2 runs per game, that's enough to give you the home field advantage. It allows you to win 54% of your games. If you win 54% of your games, you might win playoffs too, by the way. Um, if we look at that home run effect I just described, that you're going to give up more home runs, we can predict that if you give up that many more home runs, which is about 0.1 uh, per game, um, that will lead to about 0.2 runs per game. Because, you know, a home run could happen with someone on base. Uh, and so that change in home runs can fully explain the change in winning percentage as a result of jet lag. That is, it can explain the number of run differential, and that run differential then explains whether a team is going to win or lose. So while it's true, you're, you're remarking on, you're asking about other metrics. So these other metrics could be, maybe we didn't see anything. And the one thing we did see can explain all the things that happen as a result. Change in winning percentage, some of the runs scored, can all be explained by home runs. That's not the only thing we saw, but that was the biggest thing. And we saw it so in correct. independent So We sort of internally replicated the results. It wasn't some random statistical you know, blip. Uh, we saw it twice, which makes it probably... So correct me if I'm wrong. But what the data seems to indicate is that home field advantage can rely basically and almost exclusively on jet lag. And that's where home no, field no, advantage comes no, from. No, no. I'm simply comparing it to home field advantage. So let me just add one more point about our jet lag study. We not only looked at teams that are on the road that are jet lag, we also independently, separately looked at the home team when they're jet lag. That is... You know, if the Yankees were playing a home game, but the night before, maybe two nights before, they just flown in from Los Angeles to come home. They're jet lagged, actually. Um, and so when we look at that group, even at home, when they're jet lagged, they had a pretty, they had almost the same response as if the Dodgers were traveling to New York for a road game. The jet lag affected those two groups equally. And effectively, when, when a pitcher has flown from L.A. to New York and pitching at home, their performance is equivalent to what they would perform as if they were still on the road. It's sort of like what I just said about the clock. The clock is still back in Los Angeles. 
So you said that there are other studies in addition to yours that have sort of poured over this data. If there's so much science out there, do you know, perhaps if maybe Major League Baseball has taken a look at this and thought, OK, we have to be a little bit more careful when we build the schedule to account for this? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. In fact, I believe it was in the last, but I believe it was in the last labor agreement that uh, players wanted more days off or the travel schedule adjusted to minimize uh, these jet lag effects. I think it's also affected the NBA schedule where they want more days off between series to allow more time to adapt to, to new time zones. So I think the, the fact that this data has been out there for a while, this idea has been out there, um, I think it's impacting the schedule. We noticed, for example, just looking at the schedule, and looking at the number of games of jet lag. that So one of the other aspects of this that's sort of interesting is that, so I mentioned uh, we have the circadian clock. So circa actually means near, uh, dia meaning day. So near 24-hour day. Because the reason is that for most of us, our internal biological clock is not exactly 24 hours. We run a little long, we're a little slow maybe why we kind of stay up late and have trouble getting up in the morning. Um, but it also means that it's easier for us to travel west, but we just have to get up later and later and later to adjust than it is for us to travel east. And in fact, almost all the effects we saw of jet lag were when you travel east, and not when you travel west. And that was actually an important control for us because it told us it's not traveling the football. It's the adjustment to the new time zone going east which fits with the biology of our own circadian clock, which is running a little longer um, than, than, than 24 hours. And so Major League Baseball has altered the schedule. We saw this in our data sets where if a team, I gave you the example of flying from LA to New York, as it turns out, that's a vanishingly rare circumstance in the schedule. Major League Baseball will have a team fly from New York to LA, so going to West, that's easier for our circadian clock, but when that team is coming back, they're going to go L.A. to Denver. Then they're going to play next series in Chicago. Then they're going to play their next series in New Right? So that's going to help you adjust by not having you fly all the way back at once. You're sort of making this hop to come back. And so clearly it's influenced the way the schedule makes. But even, even with that adjustment, we were still able to see the jet lag effect. In fact, one of the other questions I often get asked is, well, teams know about this over this 20-year period. Maybe by the end of the 20-year period, the teams have adjusted to such an extent that you won't be able to see the jet lag anymore if you look in your later years. So we actually compared the later years and the earlier years, and we actually found no difference between the two. So um, apparently whatever the teams are doing doesn't seem to be impacting the negative effect. And I have some theories as to what, what might be going on, but I think that that's, that's, that's the answer. So it's interesting as we get into the postseason here, and, and as we sit and record this conversation, both the Yankees and the Dodgers are still in. Um, and, and so if you're telling me that Major League Baseball has staggered the schedule so the, the West Coast teams gradually make their way east – if there's a scenario where both the Dodgers and the Yankees get through, for example, to the World Series, if game one is at Yankee Stadium, 
that could backfire on the Dodgers potentially. Am I am I reading all this right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the one of the uh, you're absolutely correct. And in fact, what's very interesting about playoff baseball, as you, I think, as you alluded to in your question, it's different about playoff baseball. Is, you know, obviously they can't intersperse. You know, for LA play Denver and then, you know, Colorado and then play Chicago and then come New York. In the playoffs, there's, I think, typically, I don't remember the scheduling exactly, but a day off between, you know, so they'll be going from LA and then a day, day off and then maybe coming to New York to play their next series. And I, I can tell you just from our data, those teams are going to be jet lagged. So, you know, if I was making a prediction, something to watch if that kind of series happens is watch the number of home runs. Watch how well the pitchers pitch when they when they just arrive in the book. Um, and that could be either team. Now, one way a team could try to adjust for this, and I've, I've heard sort of anecdotally at least that some teams do do this, is leave your pitcher. If you know your starting pitcher is going to be pitching that game coming back to New York, they don't make the trip to LA. Um, that kind of thing. So that they don't have to worry about being jet lagged because they're always there. They're starting pitcher. So they don't necessarily need to be available to pitch, you know, when the team is in Los Angeles. Or at best, you can have them even come back early to so their clocks can adjust more. And we keep using the example of Los Angeles and New York, obviously, because those are the two farthest points from each other <laughs> on the map. But I mean, is there an impact of something as simple as one or two time zones difference? Or yeah. do you basically need to go from one coast to the other to see this? Yeah, that's a great question because you're you're right. There, there actually aren't that many games that involve that kind of that length, that travel because of the way the schedule has been built. So in our study, actually, we treated if you have two hours or three hours of jet lag, we treat that as a group. So two hours clearly has an effect. Um, and we haven't published it yet, but we did a more systematic analysis looking at zero, one, two, and three. And um, even there then, we can detect even with a one hour change, you can see significant effects. And there's another example that all of the, your audience, um, or maybe much of your audience will appreciate. Um, there's a similar circumstance that happens every year for us. And that's daylight savings time. So in daylight savings time, we spring forward, particularly when we go forward, right? We have to speed everything up. And as I mentioned before, as our clocks run a little bit slow, we have trouble going forward. We have easier time to fall back in the, in the fall. Um, so in that, after that spring forward, there's now a number of studies um, looking at sort of health consequences of that, so ER visits and all sorts of things. And a lot of those go up right after we do the spring forward. So that's just a one-hour shift. That's equivalent of like a one-hour jet lag, if you will. Everything happens one hour earlier now. Um, as if you travel from, say, Chicago to New York. So we know there's health consequences of that. And I would just say in our data set, we also observe performance effects. And you know, really, we focus a lot on that home runs. Thing. So even an hour of jet lag, and it's hard to believe because most people think that that's kind of minimal. Uh, you can see significant effects. And, and again, I want to emphasize also, because not everybody does a lot of travel, even daylight savings time can have that effect. And it's actually led to now a number of bills and legislatures to go to permanent time instead of shifting back and forth during the year because of these potential health consequences. 
I, it's funny. I got a note from a friend when I told him I was going to be talking to you today. Um, and, and he's, uh, also rabid baseball fan. And he sent me a note. He said, I've heard about this guy's study, meaning yours. Uh, and he says, uh, he says, I've got people in the sports betting uh, industry who <laughs> tell me that they look at his study and they use it as a factor when they're putting out the odds for various, uh, for various teams and various uh, games that are going on on a day-to-day basis. So I'm not sure if that's the impact you wanted to have, but it's, uh, it's, it's certainly out there and people are, people are taking all this information seriously. It's fascinating. Uh, the thing I find amazing and it was, I, I don't often write down questions in advance, but the one thing that I absolutely wanted to ask you about was, and you covered it off anyway, so I didn't even need to go there, was the idea that, you know, there wasn't much of a shift from the games 20 years ago versus now, because you look at conditioning of players and everything like players now know, you know, within a 15 minute window, when to have a cheeseburger and when not to. But if you go back 20 or 30 or 40 years, you had players smoking in the dugout, um, you know, cause we just didn't know back then, but you're saying no shift as far as the jet lag is concerned, which just fascinates yeah. me. And it's, what's interesting also is that, I mean, it's maybe more of a baseball cultural issue is that you have all the analytics that, you know, they're, they have all the numbers, number one, number two, a lot of teams are hiring consultants to, to advise them in this area. So there's a ton of information out there, but sometimes there's a gap between having the numbers, knowing the right thing to do, and then actually putting it into, into practice. And it, it could be that, you know, if you're, if you're a highly paid superstar player, uh, you may not see the value in, in some of this number crunch. <laughs> you know, so I think that, that may, there may be the gap is right there. That's my guess. I start to look down the list here for at least as of you and I sitting down right now and, and who's in and I'm, I'm seeing the Astros and the Dodgers. There's a lot to think about as the playoffs unfold this season. And now you've given me an entirely different way to geek out and watch this thing this year. So I appreciate it. Ravi, thanks for making time for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for having me on. There you go, Dr. Ravi Alada from Northwestern University. And as promised, part two of our special Major League Baseball-themed episode this week as we bring you Dan Schulman from ESPN Radio, the radio voice of Major League Baseball. Uh, first of all, um, I'm going to give you the same question that every guest on the Snooze Button podcast gets, be they a rock star or a neuroscientist or somewhere in between. And it's a loaded question for you, given what you were up to. How did you sleep last night? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, I'm on the West Coast and I'm an East Coast guy, so it was my second night on the West Coast. So uh, I fell asleep in a in a heartbeat as I normally do. Uh, I think I was up until about eleven o'clock West Coast time, and I woke up at about five five fifteen West Coast time. So for me, that's not bad on my second night out west. My first night here, I was up at about three forty five because I was still totally on East Coast time. So you know, to get six six and a half hours on my second night out west is actually uh, not a bad deal for me i am so envious of you because uh for people who listen uh, to the previous episodes of the show i have and i just got diagnosed with it two weeks ago restless leg syndrome and so my 30 years of trying to fight insomnia that i was ready to blame on the fact that i've been waking up to do a, ra- a morning radio show for 30 years i find out instead that the reason it takes me three hours to fall asleep every night is because of restless leg syndrome where i huh. kick violently 
uh, every 45 seconds all night long. So you tell me that you fall asleep right away. I'm very, very jealous. Do you not, though, sometimes, I mean, I know the game that you were covering last night for ESPN. Uh, it was as close as a blowout uh, as you were going to get. I mean, it was, I don't know that the game was ever in question, but is it ever tough when you get back to the hotel after a game that you're just so wired because it was an exciting game or, or have you gotten over that part of your career now? Um, you no, know, sometimes it's tough. I mean, sometimes I go straight to the room and sometimes I go out for a drink or a bite to eat. You know, it depends what time the game starts, right? So this game in question that I did in Oakland started at five Oh nine local time. So it was late back East, but for me, it was over eight thirty, whatever it was. I was back at the hotel, nine fifteen, nine thirty, and met up with a couple of old friends who I haven't seen in a while. And we had, a you know, we had a little bite to eat and a couple of drinks. So, um, that got me to about 11 o'clock clock. Um, there are times when sometimes I just, you know, seven o'clock game, eight o'clock game, whatever the case may be, go straight to the room and, and I can pretty much go right to sleep. Now, if it was a really exciting game, maybe I, you know, I do the wrong thing. I turn on the TV, I turn on the laptop, I get on my phone, I get on Twitter or whatever the case may be. And then once you do that, of course, even though you know, you're going to make that, that's going to make it harder to fall asleep. If you're curious and interested, you end up doing it. But if I'm being smart, if my flight is early the next day, that's part of the equation too. Am I flying the next day? What time is the flight? So if I'm being smart, you know, I, I go into the room, I brush my teeth, turn off the lights, get into bed, but it doesn't always work that way. So before we get any further into, um, you know, the playoffs this year and, and, and more about your sleep, which I want to dive into a little bit further, because people who do what you do specifically for a living, I mean, you and I are in the same field, but in completely different ends of it. One of the things that I am cognizant of is the fact that um, this show uh, seems to be something of a hit um, with the geeks, with the science nerds, with the neuroscience crowd and, and people who study science for a living. And so I find it fascinating, and this might not be a thing that that crowd knows about your career, is that broadcasting, radio, television, all those things, those weren't right out of the gate option A for you, were they? No, uh, it wasn't an option at all. I was an actuary. Uh, I was a math geek, uh, went to Western and majored in actuarial science and just kind of messed around at the campus radio station while I was there, graduated, worked as an actuary very quickly that it wasn't what I thought I wanted to do. And, and so kind of gathered up some old cassette tapes from the late eighties from my time at Western and uh, sent them out and, and got into radio and, and never envisioned. My goal was just to work at a Toronto radio station was just to get to Toronto and be able to work. And I, and I did that relatively quickly wound up at CJCL, which eventually became the fan um, and worked all different kinds of shifts, um, evenings, mornings, middays, drive, uh, all kinds of stuff. And never did I dream that I would start doing play by play, um, that I would start, which was actually my favorite thing. It's what I did at Western mostly, but I never dreamt that I would be able to do that for a living. And then, you know, getting back to sleep, you start doing play by play, you start traveling. But even if you didn't, like I did six months of a morning show. So, you know, now you're waking up at three 30 in the morning. And then oftentimes I was doing the post game show when the blue Jays game. So now you're going to sleep at midnight or if it's a West coast game, you're going to sleep at two in the morning or something like that. So yeah, if you're, uh, if, if you're looking for nine to five, I wouldn't suggest getting into broadcasting. <laughs> now, I mean, for a guy that grew up in the Toronto area, I mean, you're right. Getting to Toronto, period, that's a, that's a pretty lofty career goal. But then 
to get to Toronto and then get the call from ESPN after that, which is like, you know, a whole other level. I mean, that uh, for a guy who wasn't even thinking of broadcasting at first, how long did that take to wrap your head around? Uh, I, you know, there are still times when I am still trying to wrap it because uh, the whole thing was kind of surreal. It was, you know, there was some good, you know, serendipitous sliding doors kind of moments and, and um, things happened fast. Like I, I graduated at 22. I was in radio at 23. I was in Toronto at 24. And I started doing some part-time stuff for ESPN uh, at 26 and I started calling games for ESPN at 28 and, and, um, it, 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 it came quickly and I, and it was all like a, like, it felt like I was on a ride or something like that. It was never, I never thought about ESPN. I never thought about television. I never thought about play by play. I just assumed I would be a radio guy doing sports casts. And, and that was great. That was fine. And, and, you know, just, uh, I was very lucky. The fan was starting and the Leafs and Jays were both great then. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of excitement around them and a lot of years. And, and, um, you know, then the, the blue Jay, uh, Jim Houston, who was doing the blue Jays left. So I wound up doing some Jays and ESPN. ESPN heard me and, and, you know, boom, boom, boom. And it was just, it was, um, it was wonderful. It, it really was. It was a very exciting time of my life. I was young and, and, you know, very, uh, you know, very driven to, once I got a taste of it, I was driven to, to see where I could take this. And, and so, uh, it's all, it's a period of my life. I look back upon very fondly. I remember when you first hit the radio scene in Toronto because uh, you are, I think, I think you're 22 days or so older than I am. So we're a very similar vintage and and similar length in the business, too. Um, uh, Is it is it the actuarial sciences that made baseball a natural fit for you? Because that was my first association with you was always baseball. Is it, is that the statistical nature of what you already were doing that made baseball an easy, an easy segue? Maybe. Um, I mean, I loved it. Like, I became a baseball fan April 7, 77. I was 10 years old. Blue Jays are born. And I became a huge fan right then. And, and uh, yeah, the math part of my brain, it's not its not nearly as strong now as it was back then. But the math part of my brain, I think, drew me to baseball as a kid. But I love the strategy of it and the subtlety of it. And, and I just love everything about it, actually. So um, I, I would assume there is some connection between the math part of my brain and, and, and my love for baseball. And it's helped me on the air a little bit. I can, you know, calculate ERAs and batting averages a little bit quicker than the average guy probably. So, but, but I'll be honest with you. I, I love basketball. I love hockey. I love football. Like I'm a basketball, baseball announcer. I easily could have wound up doing hockey and football. The, the opportunities that presented themselves to me were in the baseball and basketball field. That, that's, that's where things opened up. Um, had it opened up in hockey, you and I might be talking about me being a, you know, a sports net hockey announcer right now or something like that. So part of it was opportunity, but I think part of it is I, I, was, I was always drawn to baseball. You're a guy who, I mean, I would love to have access to your frequent flyer miles because I'm sure you're all (laughs) over the place all the time. Tell me about the challenges because we just talked to Ravi Alada about the challenges for, you know, professional athletes, uh, particularly those who are going from the West Coast to the East Coast to play. But for you, who's potentially in a different city every night, 
Talk to me about the impact that has on you. And particularly, we'll get back to your sleep, because I'm assuming sometimes that's got to be a challenge for you. Uh, it is. And, it, and it's it's getting harder as I get older, too. I think you can bounce back easier when you're younger. Like when I was in, I guess, my late 30s and early 40s, for a while for ESPN, I was doing college basketball and the NBA, uh, both uh, simultaneously. So this didn't happen every week. But like as an example, I could have a Thursday night game, college game um, at Syracuse. And I could have a Friday night NBA game in Oklahoma City. And then I could have a Saturday college game in North Carolina. And then I could have a Sunday night NBA game in Memphis. And that was hard, you know, because not only do you have to get there, but you've got to be prepared, too. So you've got to get your sleep when you can, and you've got to be productive when you're awake. And that means working on planes and, and stuff like that. And I'm not complaining. I love my job. But, I, but um you know, back then I could get by night after night after night on four hours, five hours, six hours, and still manage to do the games. I can't do that anymore. But uh, so for an example, this week, I spent the weekend in St. Louis. I did three Cardinal games. I flew home Monday to have a day at home with my family. Tuesday, flew to Oakland. Last night, did the A's game. Today, flying to New York. The next two days, doing the Twins and Yankees in New York, and then flying to Minneapolis to continue the series there, and that's that's typical for October. That, that's that's the kind of thing. So, um, you know, you have time change, which make which complicates things a little bit. Like this game would have been easier for me had it been in Tampa than had it been in Oakland from a from a sleep perspective. But I, I think I've become used to it, and I've become. I'm sure it's like a lot of other people. You know, I'm sure doctors deal with this. I'm sure uh, many many people deal with this. You you become used functioning when you don't have the optimal amount of sleep. So, but, but as I get older, um, it, it's like when I was 30, I never would have said, well, I should go to sleep at 10 because I got to wake up at four to catch a 6am flight. And now that's like a priority for me. It, it's because I know it's going to be difficult for me to function the next day if I don't get what I need. And, you know, I try to work on planes. Inevitably, I end up falling asleep halfway through the flight. And I'm sure I will on the way from San Francisco to New York today. But uh, yeah, sleep, as I get older, sleep is moving higher and higher on my uh, on my important list. Well, and I'm listening to your itinerary and I'm thinking like probably even Mick Jagger would sit back and go, wow, that guy spends a lot of time on the road. Um, so, I mean, in terms of and you, you mentioned this is getting more difficult as you get older, and I think it does for all of us. So are there things that you have come to lean on? Are there do you have, for example, because I'm always eager to get these. Do you have a sleep hack that I should go and try out? Like, here's what Dan Shulman does when he's on the road and he's having trouble falling asleep. No. Um, and again, falling asleep is generally not an issue for me. Staying asleep sometimes is an issue. Like if I wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes I have trouble falling back asleep. And I always thought it was kind of a cruel twist of fate. Uh, you know, when you're young, you never wake up in the middle of the night. And if you do, you can go back to sleep. Uh, when you get a little bit older, um, sometimes you wake up <laughs> more often than, than when you were younger. And for whatever reason, when you're older, I find that it's harder to fall back asleep. But but um, initially falling asleep is not an issue for me. I don't have I don't do it. I don't take sleep aids. I don't do. There's some things I try not to do. Like, again, when I was 30, if we had a if we had a game and we went out at 1030 and I had a game the next night in the same city, for example, like if I had a big plate of nachos and four beers, I was fine. Now I don't feel good. And, and I, I, firstly, I, uh, obviously I know it's not healthy for me to do that at 11 o'clock at night and you have to take care of your health more as you get older too. But I also find that I sleep better if I don't, 
eat the wrong thing or eat too much or eat too late in the evening. So I'm conscious about that. And, you know, four beers is now a glass of wine or one beer, that that kind of thing. So those things help me. But in terms of sleep aids, like I don't take melatonin, I don't have a mask, I don't put on white noise on an app on my phone or anything like that. I've, I've, I guess I've been fortunate. I've never really had to do those things. Well, and one of the things that I talk to people about when, when this subject comes up of, well, why don't you take this, that, or the other, like we're kind of in a field much like doctors, first responders, that sort of stuff, where when, when you're awake, you know, we don't get the luxury of waiting for the coffee to kick in. And, and while you're, uh, our schedules are different, obviously. So generally my, my work time is at night. Um, and I, I don't drink very much coffee. I, I usually have like one morning coffee, but if I do a seven o'clock game, I don't have a coffee at 6 PM or anything like that. I don't drink Red Bull. I don't drink uh, five hour energy. I don't drink any of that stuff. So, um, you're right. You, you, you have to do it. You just have to do it on natural adrenaline or manufacture it if you have to do it, you know, and then you'll have the odd night. And this happens in baseball more than any other sport. Like every now and again, a game goes 15 innings <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's okay to be tired, but, um, it, it's not okay to sound tired on the air. Like uh, everybody who's watching is watching for a reason. The game's important to them. This is uh, it's entertainment for them. And so I think that's one thing that people don't understand a little bit about what we do. I don't want to say it's performing, but it's it's almost it's like a singer on a stage. It's like an actor in a play. Um, you are you're being yourself, but you have to provide a higher level of energy than you would if you and I were just sitting there watching the game or out for dinner or at a bar or something like that. So there are games and it's, it's happened a lot to me in the playoffs when there have been long games and I, I do radio in the playoffs and radio for me for a play by play guy requires um, more energy. It's just, you're, you're driving the bus more as a play by play guy on radio than you are on TV. And there are games where I've gotten off the air in the, in the postseason in October and I've said, I'm white. Like I'm really, really tired. And, and, uh, but again, you, you, you know, it, it's a, you find a way to deal with it. it. It's, it's a wonderful job that I have. And if, if being a little bit tired here and there is the, is the worst thing that that's not so bad. I just have to make sure that when I have the opportunity on an off night or something like that, that I'm, that I'm smart and I get back on track with my sleep. I'm, I'm very conscious of your time. So I've only got, uh, you know, one or two more quick things to throw at you. I'm Dr. Alada talks about, you know, because we're looking at a scenario where the Dodgers and the Yankees are both still very much in the playoff picture. And Hey, we could have a Dodgers Yankees world series where we're looking at, you know, we don't get the luxury of the travel arrangements they had in, uh, the last collective bargaining agreement. And we might end up with a scenario where, they're flying into New York from the West Coast for a game, and everybody would expect that there's going to be the performance hit that Ravi Alada alluded to in our conversation a few minutes ago. Does it affect, in your experience, the players off the field as well? Like, is it, is it, are they crankier, you know, for example, in the interviews that they're doing pregame and stuff if they're jet lagged? Or does everybody just kind of accept it as, you know what, this is part of the gig and this is what I do for a living and et cetera, et cetera? 
Yeah, I, I think it's part of the gig, but like there are times, um, you know, when I was 20 years ago, teams took batting practice every day. Now they don't because rest is more important. If you have a Saturday night game and a Sunday day game, you, you know, like if you're a, if you're somebody who's lucky enough to get like passes to be behind the, the cage during batting practice, don't do it on a Sunday. Nobody hits on a Sunday. And that's 100% because of rest. Extra inning game, cancel batting practice. Long flight in, cancel batting practice. Uh, they call it show and go. Just get to the ballpark and go play, be there 45 minutes before and go play. And I think that's smart. So, um, yeah, listen, if, if we have a 15 inning game and then we're back in there for a day game the next day, um, when I walk into the clubhouse, it's a little more sparsely populated than it normally is. And everybody's a little bit more subdued than they normally are. So I, you know, whether there's a, uh, for sure there, there's a decrease, I would imagine in performance and, and they're, they're, they're professional athletes, but they're like anybody else. They're like anybody who, you know, a, doctor, a, a plumber, or a broadcaster, a teacher, anybody who's had a short sleep night is going to be a little bit off the next day. And, and that's, you know, we're all human. So um, I, I think everybody gets it. Um, but when they, you know, when they say play ball, they got to play and we got to call the game and everybody does it as best they can. Well, and like Ravi said just a few minutes ago as well, I mean, if if you look at this Dodgers-Yankees scenario, if the Yankees recognize that their game three starter is going to be on the East Coast, there's no point in having him at the games in Los Angeles because then he's just going to be fighting jet lag when he comes back. So I'm sure you see that all the time too, especially in the playoffs where there are players that just don't make the trip because they don't need to be there and why add extra travel and rest issues on top of an already complicated situation. Yeah, it's interesting. You see it in the regular season when a team will send the next day starter, if he's starting at home at a different time zone, they'll send him home early. They might fly him home commercially a day or two early. I don't know that I've seen it as much in the playoffs because there are times in the playoffs when crazy stuff happens, extra innings or a pitcher gets hurt. Now you got to move somebody else up and, and or have him pitch in a different situation and you run the risk of not having that guy if you don't take him. But it, it is it is very interesting and it, and it if we get to a, a New York, Los Angeles World Series, it's a good question. I'll be uh, the games one and two would be in New York, and I would be curious to see if the game three starter, whoever that would be for the Dodgers, if he would go to New York. So, but then there would be three games in Los Angeles. So I think the Yankees would have to bring everybody uh, with them. But you know, the other question, and, and teams are looking at this differently sometimes too, is do we fly after the game? Uh, or do we let the guys go home, get some sleep and fly, you know, 10 in the morning the next day? And I think more and more teams are starting to fly on the off day, uh, whether it's regular season or in the postseason, rather than get in at four or five in the morning and, and all that stuff. Let them go home, let them sleep in their beds, set an alarm, get to the airport and, and get there middle of the day. But you know what? I, I'm glad we listen from there's so many different things in sports from nutrition uh, to weight training to concussion protocol and rest is is part of it. And, and I'm glad people are focusing on this more because uh, whether it's in sports or just in any walk of life, you know, someone, like you said, you've battled with it. So somebody who's dealt with insomnia, it's not something to be taken lightly. Like there, you know, we know there that it, it causes physical issues when you don't get enough sleep. So especially for people who travel, the more research they can do, the better. And I'm always open to hearing about new things. Whether, uh, I wish you were calling games for my team, but uh, my team kind of stunk out the joint this year. Um, but it's not the baseball playoffs if I don't hear Dan Schulman calling the games. And so I, I appreciated uh, you being able to make time for this today. Dan, thank you so much. And we'll keep an ear on you all through the playoffs. All right, Neil. Thank you. Take care. 
Dan Shulman from ESPN Radio, the radio voice of Major League Baseball. And before that, Dr. Ravi Alada from Northwestern University. Great stuff. Thanks, guys. Uh, next week, we talk to Michael Grandner. Dr. Michael Grandner is an expert when it comes to wearable sleep tracker technology, Fitbit, Apple Watches, and whatnot. The things that purport to help you track your sleep because... Well, I mean, I'm at a stage now where I'm getting ready to experiment with some other things to improve my sleep. But before I take any of those into account, I got to figure out whether or not any of those things are actually making a difference. The only way I can do that is if I've got a tracker that I can depend on. So we'll get input from Dr. Michael Grandner about actually which one of those we should be looking at. That's coming up on next week's episode of The Snooze Button. Now, a quick reference to remind you to go to our website, thesnoozebutton.com, not only for the show notes, but also for a bunch of links, contest page. You can leave a question for our panel of sleep experts. Uh, Easy way there to rate and review the show. Wow, would we appreciate it if you did that. You could also leave us your feedback there. Uh, Links there to all our social media profiles as well. And if you would like to make a donation to keep the doors open and to make sure that The Snooze Button stays commercial, free there's a link for that as well and remember if you're crunched for time but you love the information there are nine minute versions of every episode with a different podcast that we call the snooze button express and the links for that are on our website as well the snoozebutton.com see you back here next week for dr michael grandner until then my name is neil get some sleep would you